and welcome to episode 238 of the Craig and Crowbell podcast, coming to you live, or not live, <laughs> pre-recorded, <laughs> on the 9th of May. <laughs> I remember how to do this extremely well. I'm Marsh Davis, a special guest returning from the grave, joined by... Oh, Philippa, hi. Pip. <laughs> Me, Chris Thurston, hello. Perfect. Tom Francis, hello. <laughs> I didn't mean to sing out Chris is perfect there. Obviously, you're all perfect. <laughs> a fantastic intro. Thank you, thank you. It's been a while, but I'm back Yeah, for welcome. one single episode. Welcome back to your home, this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> it's literally, <laughs> in, literally in my home. <laughs> uh, although it feels a lot more homely now that I've not been living in it. <laughs> and unreal humans have been inhabiting it for a period of time and making it feel nice. It's good, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It's what actual human warmth looks like. I've not experienced it's that. funny. You and I lived here for two years without <laughs> getting anywhere near that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember I fixed the skirting board once and you both just looked at me like, what are you doing? Well, it's important to note that during the time that me and Marsh lived here, that the only people who were capable of fixing anything in the house was someone who possessed the omnipresent dad force, mm. <laughs> uh, a power, uh, a capability of a screwdrivers and toolkits possessed only by dads. That came kind of hand in hand with a like a fondness for Top Gear and a, 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 a love of jumpers. I don't really know where I'm going with that, but nonetheless, it was true. And then you came along, Pip, and proved us all wrong by fixing that skirting board. <laughs> but I'm back, and no skirting boards will be fixed this evening. While I was back in Bath, can I tell you uh, my most Bathy anecdote since I've been back here? Yeah, which is I was in town, and there was a man unloading stuff from the back of a Hygienic Air branded van. And he was wearing a Hygienic Air branded hoodie. And while he was doing this, he not only sneezed, but farted. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's that's British irony perfectly. And that's why I came back to this country. <laughs> then I held my breath and walked past. <laughs> Did he sneeze and fart at the same time? It was There was like a second difference between it, but it was a real kind of one-two punchline, you know? It's sort of like when you see the lightning and then you hear the thunder. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has one of those like Diablo perks. Like one can proc off the other. Ah, <laughs> uh, good. There's um, there, Once again, as there was last week, basically no video game news as far as I understand. Um, however, we I did make you all just watch the trailer uh, for a video game called Atomic Heart, hmm? uh, which could be described as sort of Bioshocky, a little bit stalkery. But not in a weird way. I mean, in the style of the video game stalker. Uh, also, a little bit near automata in the manner of its big round robots. But looks really rad, I thought. Yeah. Tom? It's extremely visually lavish and full of uh, interesting character designs and like really offbeat stuff. A very horror vibe, uh, but also really bright and colourful, mm. which is an interesting combo. Uh, I felt like a lot of it, a lot of the trailer felt like a, uh, a sort of visualization of like a, you know, target previs thing where they've, mm. they've hit this, here's what we're going for with the gameplay experience. Cause it had that, that telltale thing of like when someone's running, there's this sort of beautifully scripted motion to it that you never get when you're actually in control because, uh, you know, the person making this scene knows where the character is going to go. So they know how to like have their movements anticipate that there are a couple of little clips where like they're firing a machine gun or, um, yeah. moving around a space that, that did definitely look like they were being controlled by WASD or a gamepad. Um, but yeah, it looks like, 
a lot of it, I couldn't really imagine, like, how am I playing this? Because it seems like a scripted scene. Lots of moments of what is clearly the kind of moment in Bioshock where you pick up a gun for the first time and your character yeah. wow, <laughs> look at that, and turns it over very kind of, like, very much in their own face. Um, and there were the ends of QTEs as well, yeah. where they ripped out mm. robot faces and yeah. stuff. But not that much stuff about what it would be like to get between those two points. Mm. But yeah. it's not a bad thing. I mean, at the end, they like zoom out and show like a map, map that sort of seems to be implying it's open world, which I can't quite believe. It looked <laughs> up until then, it looked much more like a, a sort of directed experience. Mm. So either it is a directed experience and that map is likely misleading, or they want it to be an open world game, but they haven't made it yet. <laughs> yeah, because in between there is sort of like spooky corridor, robot clown horror, mm. zombies, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Drones from Half-Life, but designed a decade later. Um, a, a park of mm-hmm. some description. Pines? A big, a big round robot who has rocket butt cheeks. <laughs> all, lots, the, all the things that you yeah, want. Exactly. Really. Like, yeah, just a big full checkbox of every noun <laughs> that there is. Pip, what did you make of it? It's like watching a first-person shooter having a dream. <laughs> yeah. Like, every now and again, it would just slam you back to the first-person shooter perspective, and you'd just be like, okay. And then it would just suddenly go off on one, like, oh, okay, right, you, this hmm. is this is what you would like to encapsulate. What if a robot but clown I, was vomiting an infinite cable? <laughs> but yeah, but then it, it kept doing that thing of showing you, yeah, like a, a person who is making sure that a gun looks the same from both sides <laughs> which i mean uh, or can't find the safety switch i was caught out once by the guy who wrote you're a dickhead on the on the public face of my gun and i will never be caught out by that again or it's checking that it's really that shiny so but i mean and and that was a bit like I guess that's the thing that makes me think I'm not sure I believe all of the other things that you are saying to me right now because, mm-hmm. you know, if if the thing that actually looks like it's gameplay footage is looking like Bioshock, I'm kind of like... <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's, it's nice to have a vision, but it's, you know, it's like with the Red Dead Redemption 2 trailer, I was like, well, that's an interesting, you know, or not an interesting, but that's a short <laughs> film that yeah. I just watched. Yeah. No, I, I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed listening to all of your uh, your opinions on the Red Dead trailer last week because they they uh, it uh, had exactly exactly the flaws that you picked out. Obviously, that it was just not a lot of what you'll actually be doing in it. And I, I don't know is, is this going to be a trend for video game trailers? Do people is, are there like the 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 verbs of video games just so kind of well known that people uh, the PR and marketing departments are just like yeah. The gamers all know that that's what they're going to be doing, so let's show them all the other I stuff. Think maybe or- it's just not the point in the rollout where they show you the gameplay, mm. right? Like, because this trailer had, like, they did a tease of the announcement for the trailer. Like, it was one of those things of, like, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna tell you the date on this date. It yeah. was, you know, it's those Russian dolls of announcements, you know, mm. where you sort of, Mm. how far back can you get from the the real meat of the game while still maintaining people's interest or coverage or hype or whatever else mm. and so you know i, I guess I, and it seems to work so i guess it'll be right up until it stops working <laughs> so yeah i mean uh going by the audience of one of my barber 
He was very <laughs> excited about the uh, Red Dead Redemption trailer. Clearly, it didn't matter that it didn't show gameplay footage. He was huh. he was well up for it. Well, your hair is looking on fleek, I believe. Oh. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> Good. It didn't distract him too, too much. No. I'm not yeah. sure whether that's a phrase that is entirely limited to eyebrows or indeed young people. So, <laughs> but I don't know. Nonetheless, Marsh's hair does look like just one big cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really impressive to cut my hair in the shape of a sombrero. But he gave it a good go. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a bit in the uh, Atomic Heart trailer that I respect where they just they they show what is a good gosh darned attempt at a hype moment for a weapon customization oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that is completely out of place in what is otherwise a very showy trailer. But mm. almost that gives me faith in the whole project because if they are equally excited about their ability to spray paint a cool skull? eggshell blue yeah. skull on the side of your shonky machine gun then they must have almost no sense of the relative value of different parts of their game. But is it not just, no, no, it's okay, fellow friends. This contains microtransactions. I don't think so. I think it's so much as like, it's a moment of like, look, a menu. This is a game. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think I'm, maybe I've just spent too much time having to look into Steam skins trading for like CSGO. Mm. <laughs> I've just become massively jaded on the front of like things being slightly different colours. <laughs> but nonetheless, it was, nice to, it was a nice surprise, I thought, because it came out of absolutely mm. nowhere. I had no idea it was a thing. And now mm. it's sort of like, oh, huh. Well, it's, like, it's nice to see a shooter with some sort of visual imagination, I think. Mm. You know, I mean, it's, it is striking that it has like a sense of humour that it conveys within a very short space of time. Actually, it wasn't that short. It was like a three-minute trailer. How the hell did we manage to sit through the to the end of a no, three-minute trailer? No, it was trailer? the Witcher thing was three minutes. This oh. was only one and a half. I we oh, tried yeah. to watch a... We accidentally, <laughs> on purpose, watched a fake fan trailer for the network's Witcher series, starring but not starring Mads Mikkelsen. I don't know why we watched this, except... It was we sort next. of thought it We're might be real. We're victims of the algorithm. We got yeah. clickbaited. It was like, oh, really? Is that a thing? No. <laughs> we also but started drinking here. early, which is maybe the explanation yeah, I almost, for many things. Yeah. I almost watched a Grammarly advert for you, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I w- yeah, I will say that like there are a lot of things about it that just seem to have that Are we talking choice. about Atomic Heart or Matt Atomic Nicholson's Heart. The Witcher? I'm, not, I, I'm not going anywhere near that because I don't... I, I have no thoughts. Um, but there's a, a sort of joyous sort of embracing of over the topness and perhaps silliness, um, that Atomic Heart had that I think is often missing from games. They sort of tend to go st- straight for the gritty in, or, or at least like shooters have a very specific tone at mm. the moment, maybe. Mm. And I have missed the sort of slightly wonky six to seven out of ten <laughs> projects. And and I know that that's going to sound so shady, but I, I genuinely love when things try and do stuff, regardless of whether they succeed or fail. I would so much rather see somebody just try and do something cool or interesting than, you know, the next safe option, right? Mm. So, yeah, hopefully that undoes anything that I said earlier that didn't sound <laughs> particularly exciting. I think there's also, like... A race that we didn't realize was happening to who can do the best thing where like a big egg full of drones hatches and all these drones come out, but it's scary because that's been a race that Victor Antonov has been racing against himself <laughs> <laughs> since the early noughties. Uh, and it feels good to have like a different batch it's of an egg race. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Take on that challenge of like, but with that spoon. the yeah, egg and drone race. 
Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, nonetheless, uh, a video game. It happened. Well done. Well done, video games. <laughs> we should talk about something that we've been playing. Can I talk about some stuff? Yeah. Because I think my comments are going to be mostly unfocused. Uh, <laughs> That's fine. And gibberish, so we might as well get them out of the way early and then... <laughs> Move on to the is that not what the latter half of the podcast is for? <laughs> well, we did the podcast in reverse today because me and Chris went to the pub beforehand. Oh, so yeah, I'm going to be slowly getting more sober across the across the podcast, right? <laughs> What's in that glass there, Marty? It's ripena. <laughs> it's gin and tonic. It'll be fine. But I've been playing games you've already talked about on the podcast. I've Excellent. Been playing, uh, I've been playing lots of different things. So like my PC was broken for ages and I finally got it back. So I had to kind of like... Uh, you know, a period of debauchery where I just <laughs> played all kinds of things. And we did, I played a whole bunch of games that I played 10 years ago and have just been released. Uh, uh, so amongst them is a game you'll probably talk about later, Spy Party. But I mm. also played Gorogoa, which it seems like mm. exactly the same game that I played, I don't know, seven years ago, maybe? I don't know exactly. You no. commissioned my first piece of writing for PC Gamer <laughs> and it was Gorogoa. <laughs> there you go. I do um, believe. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a fun game. I like it. And I also played Iconoclast, which was also an identical game. <laughs> seven, maybe, in fact, I think I played that like right at the beginning of my game journalism career, like nine years ago or something like that it seems functionally identical but it's now out and i don't know if it's selling well but it should because it's actually quite a a sweet platformer with you know like an interesting uh interesting uh, narrative aspirations on top about religion and the and the way that religion forms around strange events in the world so it's mm. like it, it, it supposes I, I think humanity has crash landed on another planet and there's certain kinds of origins of power that that you know future humanity has developed and that's kind of fallen into mythology and the kinds of cultures that emerge many 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 generations after that are quite well thought out and all that stuff is just on the fringes of what is quite a satisfying metroidvania platformer mm. but aside from that i've also been playing Far Cry 5, which you may have heard about on the Crazy Crowbar podcast. Uh, I don't have really anything to say about it. But, it uh, do you like it? Nah! <laughs> right. so well, we covered the basic thing. I kind of, I kind of do, but what, what struck me about it is how unimportant that world is to Far Cry. <laughs> Far Cry 5, but also all Far Cries on the basis that they've made the same Far Cry four times now, including Far Cry Primal. And really it's the same thing, but it's in slightly different places. And those places don't matter at all. And I think in the past, you've kind of tricked yourself into thinking that the environment matters because you spend quite a lot of time there. But in this one, everything is so aggressive and you're constantly being distracted by things that really where you are doesn't matter at any second during that game. There's no, there's no part of it where you sit down and you think, wow, this is, this is a really interesting place with a history. And, and it made me think about how, uh, how you appreciate environments, both in games and also in reality. Because I played a lot of Assassin's Origins, Assassin's Creed Origins as well. And I had, and that game was like a sightseeing game for me. I went to a lot of different places in it and I, I sat down. I spun around a bit and I was like, make me feel something about this environment. And sometimes it did, and most of the time it didn't. And then I realised, maybe I'm asking too much of games, because I really don't feel that way about anything in life. <laughs> and like, I can go and see a beautiful sunset. I'll probably be spinning around in reality, saying, make me feel something. 
I won't. <laughs> <laughs> so, so maybe it's not Far Cry's fault, but I think it is also Far Cry's fault. And those are my feelings about Far Cry 5. You yeah. hate sunrises. <laughs> no, I really like them. It's just, I wish I felt something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do actually really know what you mean. I felt this way about Ghost Recon Wild Lads. Oh, yeah. Um, which was a game fundamentally about a, a gorgeous active environment art. Hmm. Very expensive, extensive active environment creation across vast teams. It made me feel n- nothing at all. <laughs> and there's a sort of yeah. vicarious guilty thrill in that almost in, in feeling nothing about what is obviously such a skilled and, and, and labor intensive act of world building yeah it feels wasteful and i think yeah i think far cry is the worst waste of it like i think assassin's creed they try a lot to make you care about this environment so like you might go to the temple of sobek for example and that place has a history and it's a temple yeah and it has like that kind of innate uh, resonance that I think anybody has. So like you see a sculpture of a man with a crocodile's head and for some reason that kind of taps into some deep rooted fear of crocodile men. <laughs> <laughs> but also, but it, it's also instantaneously like supernatural and above mm. what you experience as a human, generally yeah. speaking. And, and it's, you're, you're seeing effigies of humans, but in some way elevated or more powerful. And that is, that's intoxicating in some way. Like, you instantly recognize that this has some kind of uh, religious power to it, so, even if you don't yes. subscribe to that religion, right? Mm. And those places not, are not only seeded with that meaning, but they're also places that you explore physically, and there's obviously other shit narrative stuff that they seed into those <laughs> environments, generally speaking. But in Far Cry 5, I've not really encountered any of that stuff. You, you'll find, like, a note on a counter, and you'll be like, oh, let me, I accidentally clicked on that. I'm sorry. Cancel this. <laughs> cancel this. And then, you know, uh, like a badger will attack you or something. And, uh, and that's really your only interaction. Like, there's no... They've wasted the efforts, I feel, to some extent, of those environment designers in a way in which they've tried to avoid wasting those efforts in nearly every other game that Ubisoft has made with that same format, because a lot of Ubisoft games are now built around that same massive open world, lots of quest icons thing. Mm. So, and like, yeah. yeah. No, I, I would say from like, having listened to, because I haven't played it, I haven't watched it, I haven't cared about Far Cry. I mean, you know, it's just not for me at all um and so i've only really heard about it from other people but from what they've said there's just no tonal variation there's no you know pacing it's Mm. just it's always just i'm going to throw things at you please don't leave like this is stuff you have to deal with it immediately and it reminded me of um there's a netflix show called nailed it and it's like (laughs) it's the most colorful brash shouty Mm. thing where essentially it is just people shouting at the camera trying to make gifable moments Mm. of i think they're just not very good bakers trying to replicate actual like good cakes and you know trying to produce cake wreck style humor out of it but it's just so worried that you might stop watching that it can't leave you alone and that actually makes you want to stop watching because there's no chance to have any variation of experience there's no breathing room there's no Mm. pacing it feels very monotone by Mm. being kind of like aggressively diverse (laughs) which is weird i actually (laughs) found um this one so i did find primal to be different to the rest of the series as you Mm. well know if you listen to the podcast um 
And it was partly because like there are no vehicles in that. So you can't get around quickly. Like if you want to walk, if you want to get from one place to another, you walk and you walk through a forest of like animals that can easily kill you. Hmm. Um, and uh, this one feels like the polar opposite in that not only are there are vehicles and there are planes and they're easy to get to. Um, uh, there's also a perk you can get, which means you can already fast travel, but when you fast travel, you also start in the sky, <laughs> wingsuiting <laughs> down so that you can get to basically anywhere. Like you just fast travel to somewhere that's vaguely near where you want to go. Then you wingsuit. Um, you can wingsuit about two kilometers or something. <laughs> like it's a vast distance, um, which is actually kind of good because I didn't care about the world like you. I just like it was just a place. Um, it was just like a, a, a surface on which the outposts exist. The emergent stuff exists. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was just like, get me to the next outpost. I can see there's some smoke there. I'm going to fly over there. Um, and I want to get there as quickly as possible. Uh, so I. Did you feel the same way in the previous, uh, Far Cry's that weren't primal? Like, I mean, did, is there something about the American landscape at all? Is that, is that culpable anywhere? Or is it just the way it's presented that makes it less interesting? It is the least interesting one to me. Like Far Cry 3 was a nice holiday in a tropical place. Far Cry 4 was um, Nepal, which is just, I haven't seen that particular kind of territory in a, in a game before. And it's less like vibrant than some of the others, but I sort of liked it um, for that. It was very mountainous, had all this um, vertical uh, difference, which let you use the wingsuit loads. Um, and so I kind of liked that. And then, yeah, this is the least interesting world they've done. Um, and it's pretty enough, but it's just... I wish I was allowed just, just to mooch around in it a little bit more. Like, I wouldn't take much, just like a few seconds where I'm not being attacked by a, whatever the honey badger equivalent is in Wolverine, America. I think Wolverine, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, Tiny little Hugh Jackman. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I I don't know. I, I don't think I'll, I'll, I'll pursue it any further, which is kind of sad because I feel like... You know, there's obviously a huge amount of effort's been poured into this world. I just, I just can't engage with it, really. It's just too much stuff happening. And occasionally you'll go and you'll, you'll, uh, like there's some kind of little puzzle areas you go to where you need to, uh, flip on power in certain places and then maybe navigate some electrified water, uh, in order to get to a stash. But those, those are just so, um, so Spartan in comparison with the rest of the game. I don't know. Yeah. I had I a great moment with it recently. With it. Um, with the my favorite thing about it, the companions, it, like not the story ones, but just the generic dudes you can pick up, oh. and I uh, really like taking those under my wing and like leveling them up. Um, and I had one you can direct them to who you want them to attack, and we're fighting some cultists, and I basically wanted to like level up my companion, so I told him to go and attack the cultist. The cultist got back in his car and drove off. And I was heading back to my quad bike and my companion ran ahead of me, got on the quad bike and drove off with it, <laughs> chasing the guy I had told him to kill. Cause it's just like, okay, I've got to kill this guy. Here's a vehicle. I'll take this. And so I was just left like running after both of them. <laughs> no, come back. And fair play to mission he, in life now. He just drove along on that quad bike, like firing all the guns he could at this thing, at this, uh, uh, truck until it went off the road. And then when it went off the road, he hopped off the quad bike and shot the guy. <laughs> like, I caught up like wheezing. <laughs> like, Thanks, I guess. <laughs> Yes, those are all the cries that I have to cry <laughs> about Far Cry 5. Tom, I believe you've been slaying the Spire. Yeah, the new, the third character is in there. Um, Slay the Spire uh, is the roguelike where you're also building a deck. And so each combat encounter, you have like a, a hand of cards that do things like six damage to an enemy of your choice or mm. five block, which means on the enemy turn, when they attack, you'll uh, mitigate five damage. Um and you get to see what the enemies are going to do. 
and it's still an early access and there have been two characters that have um, a kind of warrior-like one and a roguelike one. There's been a lot of speculation as to what the third one would be. Um, a lot of people obviously thought mage, including me, uh, but it's actually a kind of robot mage, <laughs> which is excellent. Um, and I've just been playing with that today and it's awesome. <laughs> They're so good at, at creating these mechanics that um, that just can snowball and escalate in crazy ways and they're just really interesting ways to to use your deck to um or to build your deck to kind of to exploit one particular mechanic or one particular thing so they're i think they're called the defect the robot mm. uh, it's a robot that's gone wrong um and its mechanic is that it has orbs <laughs> it's all about orbs and <laughs> i'm very excited about this uh so you have like three i think three orb slots um and you start with one lightning orb and lightning orb does three damage to a random enemy at the end of your turn all the time and it'll just stay there if you do nothing else uh, you can also you have a card that says it evokes your current orb then it will attack with the lightning thing and it'll just do more damage still to a random enemy um, but then you can get like a frost orb and that gives you two block every turn or if you evoke it then it gives you five block that but then it's consumed in, in doing so and then there's dark orbs <laughs> let me tell you about the dark orbs uh, the dark orbs uh, just have a damage value but they don't deal it yet uh, it just builds every turn they just add like another six damage every turn and this damage value keeps ticking up and when you finally evoke it it does all of that damage to the weakest enemy um in the fight and so it's kind of a finisher thing and the orbs are in kind of a queue so it's the one at the front that will be evoked if you do anything that evokes things um so you have to kind of have a trade-off between if you can amass lots of orbs they're all doing these passive things all the time um but if you use one up, it does a, a you know more significant uh, benefit right now, but consumes the orb, and uh, just keep discovering cool mechanics with this. So you can like, there's uh, a card that gives you more focus, but reduces the number of orbs you can have. And focus means they're more effective. So if you play that, the ones you have get better, but you can't have as many. And then I've got a relic that gives me every two turns I just get a free orb slot. So the number of orbs I can have just keeps going up and up and up out of control um which is amazing because eventually you could have you know every one of those was a block orb i'm getting so much free block every turn nothing can ever kill me um or if everyone is a lightning orb the enemy's taking so much damage every turn it's probably going to wipe them all out um but i suddenly realized i i got that i was really excited about it and then i realized that actually one of the um things like those dark orbs they're only any good when you evoke them so until they first you have to evoke Mm -hmm. whatever's in your current slot and then they move forwards, and then eventually when they're the front slot, you've got to evoke them. And there are cards that do the evoke thing, but I didn't have that many of them. The other way to evoke something is if you just gain another orb and there isn't room for it, it automatically evokes the, the current one. So if you have a dark orb in your front slot and you, you gain a frost orb, but you've got no room for it, then the dark orb happens, which is great. Um, and I was gaining slots so quickly, I couldn't do that anymore. Like, I always had free room for all the new orbs I was putting in, so I just kept gaining orbs forever without being able to evoke them. Um and so there's kind of like it's sort of suggesting two different playstyles. one is like lean on the passives more and have loads of orbs at once but not many ways to evoke them or you could focus on just a few and and they're all really good um and it's easy to evoke them and then there's a card there's a power that um gives you a big boost of focus four which is just means everything instead of doing like three damage per turn the lightning orb it does like seven damage per, per turn um which is kind of huge and it gives you four focus now, but you lose one focus every turn for the rest of the fight. And so you're going to get worse and you're going to start to get to the point where none of your orbs do anything at all. Like they can just keep losing focus until they have no effect. Um, and at that point, you're kind of lost. 
And so it's kind of asking you to bet on how long the fight's going to last. Like if mm. if you think it's if you think you can close it out in the next like well if you if you close it out in four turns then this has no disadvantage. It's just a huge boost now, a slightly less boost next turn, slightly less boost next turn, and then in four turns you'll be back to where you were. If it's going to go on for like eight turns, <laughs> in eight turns you're going to be useless. Um, and so I used it once. And I, I did screw it up. I uh, I just kept losing focus until none of my orbs did anything, and I almost was able to um, uh, to see the fight out, but not quite. And then, so that's a kind of interesting betting thing. And then I found another one, <laughs> so I can do that twice now. So it's like this thing where previously it was just a gamble of like if I think I'm in the closing phase of the fight, or if I think I will be with this extra boost that's going to give me then I should do it. And now it's like, well, I have two, so I could just do it now. And I'm sure by the time I start to like decrepify myself, I'll have another one to keep, like, keep me going. <laughs> and it's become like a drug addiction thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> like the power is, is, um, is so useful that you keep telling yourself, oh, I'm sure I'll, I'll get the right card I need to keep myself going. And I how, won't become... how knowable is that situation though? Like is you... the possibility space enough that you can, you can make it kind of assured bet yeah it it is um you start with a deck of like 15 cards and then you keep adding to them like after every fight you get to add a card Mm. and if you have poor self-restraint like me you always do it (laughs) so your deck gets bigger and bigger and bigger and you end up with like 42 cards and at that point yeah you have no idea what you're going to have in like (laughs) six turns because it's random but if you have a small enough deck then you have more control but also you have fewer cards and you start with a bunch of very basic not powerful cards so as you get good ones they can just be mixed in with your deck and then you have some bad cards and some good cards, which leads to a lot of variance. Or you can take every opportunity you get to lose cards from your deck. But that, you know, at a card shop, you can either buy new cards or you can pay to get rid of existing cards. So it's a, a separate thing that, like, the opportunities to do that are limited. Hmm. And if you turn down all new cards and only spend all of your opportunities to get rid of old cards, you can have a tiny deck, but that obviously you don't have as many good things either. Hmm. There's that thing that um, card games are essentially just mechanics, the game, right? <laughs> like what you're engaging with is a sort of a kind of pure system design in a way. Yeah. Like, do you feel like Slay the Spires is sort of like a bottomless well of those kinds of things? Because I know that like Tom Senior has also fallen <laughs> deep into it on that grounds, right? Like you can just keep kind of interacting with these things forever. Or do you think, is there anything about the way that it constructs its kind of dungeon run kind of thing that kind of has like a logical end point or a kind of ideal form um no i think it is a kind of a bottomless well because um because of the roguelike element the fact that it's mm. random after every fight you get offered three cards and you pick one of them or none of them um and that means you have just enough control that you always think you can get the card you want or you can build the deck the way you want to but actually the the random element is pretty strong um I think that's pretty much exactly what Alex said the first time he talked about it on the podcast. Yeah. It was that kind of like that just enough control, the sense mm. that you have and, and yeah. that you will just keep trying or investing. Or- and it means when you get dealt a bad hand, there's always a way to say, but if your deck was better, <laughs> it would have been something good in this hand. Um, I personally think the random element is too strong. I would rather it was a little more controllable and um, solvable, but the fact that it isn't is probably going to give it its longevity and probably make it more successful ultimately because it's more addictive. <laughs> Basically, it's more like gambling. <laughs> I feel like the too much randomness argument is something that I have heard attached to every single card-based or deck-building-based <laughs> game in existence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is kind of the point. <laughs> but, um, I, like, I, 
I at least know that if I got less randomness, or if I got the thing I'm asking for, it would give the game a shorter shelf life. It, I would get bored of the game sooner, but I think I'd have a better time in the meantime, and I'd rather have something that's like short and sweet than uh, I keep playing it forever because I'm always sure this time I'll get enough orb slots to do my ultimate thing that I'm planning. Mm. Do, do you know what the future of the game is? Are they just going to carry on releasing these things indefinitely? What, what's um, the plan? This is the last character before it, they finish the game. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, I get it out of early access, but they plan to add more afterwards or more characters. It's taken them quite a long time to do this character, and I can see why, because every character has their own deck. There are, um, I mean, they all have basic attacks and basic defense, but other than that, all the cards are unique to the class. Um, and even a lot of the relics you find, which are like the passive buffs, are unique to the class as well. Um, so it's all, like, it must be a nightmare to balance. <laughs> like, they're, they're, they want you to exploit it, and they want you to find the loopholes, so they must have to... Uh, think pretty carefully about which ones they create it's interesting because that kind of random element of the gambling element something I've been thinking about a bunch um, what I've been playing or at least a couple of hours of is City of Brass I don't know if you've encountered this yet Tom because it's I've heard of it directly relevant to uh, anyone who like Spelunky, basically, <laughs> because what it is is an attempt to render a kind of Spelunky experience in first person, basically. Oh, is this Brass Balls? Yes. Okay. It's called City of Brass. <laughs> but if you remember that it's Brass Balls, then that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what? When you first said this, I was thinking of Brass Tactics, which is <laughs> a VR game. That's the VR ball. strategy game. Right. Yeah, no, Brass, uh, City of Brass is um, the uh, first person... Uh, I was going to say a roguelike, but I imagine people who are super into roguelikes would take <laughs> issue with that. It's a rogue-esque um, video game experience um, <laughs> by, I think, some former Bioshock developers. Uh, it looks beautiful, and it's a sort of first-person... Um, so it's a first-person adventure kind of combat game uh, set in a kind of Arabian Nights mm. city. Yeah, I do know this. I've seen some um, And it's a roguelike in the sense that if you die, you have to go back to the beginning. Um, and you learn patterns and it's very sort of um it's a really i really like it and i've only played a couple of hours and i've um it's it seems pretty long like i've i've played uh like a couple of hours of it like a dozen runs or so and there are daily challenges and stuff and i've been trying them and i'm yet to beat a boss and as far as i can tell like a successful run involves beating like five bosses and then a final boss each boss arriving after three levels so i suck is is basically <laughs> what i'm saying and also i'm at the kind of uh, beginning of a, a learning curve and it does let you kind of like apply modifiers to make things easier or harder but it's not like uh something like rogue legacy or dead cells where every run you do is giving you a ben- benefit for the next one you're not like leveling up your character tremendously it's much more in the spelunky mold mold of like oh you understand something about this environment now okay reapply it and it feels a little bit to me like those early days of spelunky did where getting to the first level of the jungle felt like this was a good day. Yeah. And then like mm. 200 hours later, that's a bad day. <laughs> like, um, or you're getting to a much gra- more granular understanding of how much health you should have by that point. Um, but it's pretty cool. So the, 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 its main kind of, uh, mechanic, I guess, is, so you have a sword in one hand and a whip in the other. And the whip has two modes, uh, which are basically push and pull. So every enemy can either be uh, whipped in the head with the push option to stun them or pulled uh, with uh, the alternate fire to drag them towards you. And this interacts in a kind of freeform way with loads of different environmental traps from like trapdoors to spike traps to sand blowy things. 
uh, to like explosive barrels to flame barrels. There are also uh, like pickups like bombs and vases like in Spelunky and uh, ghost chickens that distract skeletons. <laughs> um, the standards. Yeah, which can be either picked up or anything you can pick up, you can also pick up by whipping it towards you. So the whip kind of has that kind of... Uh, uh, utility as well. And it's kind of, it's super like neat watching it all come together because like when I started playing it, I worried that it didn't have like, like it feels like a game that requires like a killer weapon, like a weapon you want to use every single time. But actually after a while with a bit of finesse, the whip kind of becomes that because you get really cool moments where like you have these little zombies that don't have arms that when they see you, they scream and their head ignites in blue flame and they charge at you. But if you whip them at the right moment, you can send them kind of careening off course into like a spike trap or something. And that feels really cool. Or you can whip a vase into your hand and then like lob it at them to, to take them out of action. Um, there are tougher zombies that you can kind of disarm by whipping different parts of their body. Um, like whipping the sword out of their hand and stuff, but you can also just drag them into a big hole or whatever. And there are sort of like ceiling kind of grapple hook points where you can whip to kind of fling yourself into the air. So there's loads of room for finesse in a way that's kind of neat. And the bosses seem to make good use of that. Like it took me a while to figure out that the first boss archetype I was encountering did require me to kind of like whip her own magic lightning balls back into her shield in a kind of <laughs> very kind of action game boss fight kind of mm. way. And then on the way, you're also picking up treasure constantly and spending that at shops for kind of upgrades to your equipment, like um, a whip that knocks people further away. Or uh, if you get hit by an enemy, you freeze nearby enemies. And there's all that kind of mechanical layer on top of it as well. And it's super, like, interesting, like how it does and doesn't adapt the kind of Spelunky experience into first person. I feel like first person's a less successful vector for slapstick. Like I've been knocked into a very deep hole several times, but you don't necessarily like see it happen the same way you do when it's your little spelunky character yeah. kind of getting batted backwards by a kind of unexpected arrow or something. Often things can kind of come at you from unexpected quarters and you're just dead, which is fair, but also sort of like mm. has less of that kind of sort of like, Oh shit moment mm. that you necessarily get in spelunky. But it does, it does work. It's, it's super cool. I think it's kind of, like, it sort of crept out of early access this month, I think, without huge fanfare that I've seen. But it's really well produced. Really, really nice looking game as well. And I would mm. definitely recommend people check it out. Imagine if whips picked up things in real life. The whole co cowboy dynamic would be just totally different. Like, they'd be picking up horses all the time. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be really Putting them in the infantry. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that Crazy. how... Like, cause I swear there have been some films, sort of 80s, kind of not necessarily the most woke things, but where, you know, the hero has, you know, put his whip out to, to bring a lady toward him. Mm, it's true. <laughs> so, I it does think. happen. <laughs> I mean, I have no idea if that would work in real life or if you would just end up with, like, did you just whip me? <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Like that's a crime. <laughs> you don't want to accidentally use the push function on your whip for that. No, no, no that's right click. You only use Q. <laughs> okay. Um, I wonder mm. to go back ever so slightly because my thoughts are apparently glacial. Um, whether the Far Cry problem <laughs> <laughs> of things just happening so much makes it more YouTube friendly because that you can be assured that you boot it up and you have an encounter. 
Mm. Like, there is something happening on screen. Oh, yeah, than, like, that's probably true. Dead airtime. I bet they I thought about wonder. that. Mm. Yeah. We can move back on to the other stuff now. I don't, I, yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good... I just feel to say it's bad, Pip. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, wait 20 minutes and then All I'll right. let you know. <laughs> what are the other weapons in the studio of Brass? So I initially thought that it nice. was just, like, sword and whip all day. But actually, like, so there are different forms of whip, but they don't seem to, like, I haven't felt the difference quite so much as you would necessarily Splunky. But I have managed to swap out the sword for, like, like a big, slow, heavy sword, which does feel kind of meaningfully different. It, like, um, you can get, like, a rapier, like a kind of quick jabbing sword, uh, which is better in certain situations, but does less damage. You can get a torch that sets enemies on fire and means they take damage over time. So suddenly, like, setting loads of skeletons on fire and then kiting them by keeping them away at the whip kind of becomes a strategy. Could you so, get two whips and one pulls no. and one pushes and it rips things in half? <laughs> or just turns them around. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> I can rotate anybody. <laughs> uh, no, uh, it's very strict. Missed opportunity. Yeah. It's still in early access, so, you know. It's not actually anymore. Oh, they, they, it's they not fucked it. Done. Yeah. <laughs> you can't infinitely whip spin people, so they missed that. Yeah. Well, it's probably why I hadn't heard of it till, mm. <laughs> till the other day. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's, there's something about it that like doesn't strike me as like immediately resting or something. It's blunky, but I almost struggle to articulate exactly why. It's, it's funny because I think it's partly a perspective thing, but also like, you sort of learn the sort of idiosyncrasies of these different enemy types. Like it does, it does the same thing of sort of like with each world or zone, there's a new sort of foe to kind of figure out. Um, and it does a laudable thing, which is that to a tremendous extent, likes Blunky actually, it's a kind of about just avoiding things sometimes. Like you kind of assume you have to fight every skeleton in a room, but often just getting to the exit with as much treasure as possible is the win because there are stores on the way and you can buy gear and then just keep moving. Um, but yeah, like I didn't get necessarily get the feeling that, um, it didn't have that sort of, I don't know, I'm really trying to finger on it. I think it partly might be because of the kind of uh, Arabian Nights theme binds everything together. There's not like a sense of like what's next in quite the same way. Like I say, you progress from kind of world to world, but it is variations within a theme, but that is quite a hair splitting criticism. I think of what's actually a pretty cool. Because I've not seen anyone try and adapt that precise mm-hmm. experience to first person before. And it's really solidly designed as a kind of first person combat game. But maybe like, mm. that is the thing. Because when, um, so obviously having heard Tom and Alex both say that thing about Slay the Spire where you have that feeling of, oh, but I could have done this mm. thing differently, right? And Spelunky does that by having that side-on perspective where you, even if you couldn't have done anything to avoid it or couldn't have done anything differently because you are a bad player, which is me, um, you still see the arrow just before it hits. Mm. You still know you're going to die. And there is part of your brain that thinks, well, I've learned from that <laughs> as a yeah. as a good human with a brain. <laughs> and you're like, I haven't, but I've tricked myself <laughs> into thinking yeah. that I did and that the next run will be oh so different because now I know that that bat might happen. Yeah. There's definitely a thing with uh, City of Brass where, like, I feel like every time I've made meaningful progress with it is because I've gotten better at it, which you'd assume is a very honourable 
trait for your game to have from a design perspective it's like my progress is gated by my own understanding of its systems and my ability in the moment to execute the things i understand in a kind of effective way what it doesn't have is that random layer of like in this run i got this thing super early and therefore i'm overpowered now Mm. i always i haven't seen that yet like i've never really like occasionally when you start there's like more or less treasure near the beginning of the map but that necessarily has a relationship with whether you find a shop early on it's very granular which is probably very fair and and, and very kind of balanceable because you can give the player more gold and have them more become more cautious waiting for an opportunity to spend it or give them less and have them feel like this run doesn't necessarily mean as much um but it doesn't have that it doesn't have that like roll the dice and see how this run's going to go thing that similar games have but that really does feel like splitting hairs necessarily but it's interesting to try and get at why these sorts of experiences do and don't kind of compel you to keep playing yeah like i bought it last week when it came out and i do really like it and i found myself playing it for like half an hour to an hour a day like do the daily challenge play a couple of times and then put it down which is actually quite a happy position for a game like that to occupy it's only 15 quid or something like it's kind of worth it for that Something that seemed to do something almost Spelunky-esque in first person was Devil Daggers. Like, mm. People seemed to have that same relationship with it, even though they were obviously very different prospects. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting an interesting comparison. comparison. I agree, Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> Eldritch was also another first person yeah. roguelike-ish thing. Um, was Tower of Guns another one? Is that a thing? Yeah, I think I played that a little bit. Mm. Um, I played uh, not first person but I played Cave Blazers a lot and at first that really felt like oh my god this is just as good as Spelunky mm. you know but with a bunch of new toys and loads more items to find and all this stuff and eventually it, I lost interest in it and it was because because of a random element um, but one that happens quite a way in which is the first boss you encounter uh, all bosses are just randomly chosen from a list of I don't know how many like 8 or 10 or something and their difficulty is wildly different. <laughs> like, A, they, they sort of require different sets of equipment to defeat, but um, much more uh, influential is just like, some of them are just balls hard and some of them are really easy. Um, and so that just always felt like the success of my run is entirely down to that one dice roll and mm. it happens like half an hour in, uh, well, not half an hour, but like 15 minutes in maybe after you invested loads of effort into it and then you just, it can just screw you. Just be like, oh, sorry, today you got the boss that can't be defeated. <laughs> Yeah, I, I like so far every time I've hit the first boss in City of Brass, it's been the same boss, which feels fair, but I'm bad at it. <laughs> which, yeah, that, there's an interesting relationship between fairness and gambling, right? That yeah. is like yeah. kind of hard to unpick what's right and what's wrong because I think City of Brass is tremendously fair, but I'm happy to throw one run at it a day and not go back constantly because I don't have the sense that next time it's going to be tremendously different. Like I enjoy it enough to keep playing, but. I'm not waiting for it to make itself easier simply on the roll of a dice, which is a degenerate thing to want from a game. <laughs> so maybe it's mm. that like fuzzy sort of gray area where you can, where it's where you can't quite distinguish what is progress through skill and what's progress through the game's RNG. Mm. And so you can kind of choose to attribute it to yourself when you do well or to the game when you do badly and being able to switch back and forth between those two things mean that you do want to put the next one in because you want the scenario where you were skilled and beat the thing rather than Mm. the one where the game screwed you over because that particular thing happened. 
don't know. Mm. I should stress though, and maybe to wrap up, because I feel like kind of dug into the weeds on quite like a complicated aspect of designing a game designed to be repeated. But actually, it's very fun to whip a skeleton into a big spike. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that is just a good, a good interaction. It's good for everybody except the skeleton. <laughs> just for all one of the people who aren't the skeleton in this interaction. Exactly. Like, there's you, you go, and the skeleton goes, Shh, you. shit. And then it's over for them. And that's great. It almost sounds skeleton. a bit like uh, Dark Messiah of Might and Magic in terms of the environmental mm, hazards. Yeah, it does. And there's a, there's some good, like, um, it has good sort of, the things it respects from Spelunky is like the importance that everything be a sort of physics-y. So, uh, which is definitely what game designers call it. Um, everything's all big on physics. And so if a big, if you decide to whip the explodey barrel, then sometimes that's going to set off the fire barrel, which will set something on fire, which will fling across the level. And that'll set a different skeleton on fire. And sometimes it'll hurt you and you don't know why, because you're viewing it in the first person. It's not that transparent, but, um, you sort of respect it because <laughs> you respect that you, respect you pressed fire. a button and that made things fly around <laughs> and whatever happens as a consequence of that is something you kind of are proud to own <laughs> do you think if you had a third person replay it would be different oh, that's uh, interesting yeah yeah maybe probably still suck at the moment you died if you didn't yeah. know why yeah, yeah. but, but if you get you to enjoy that the... last 10 seconds yeah. maybe you would feel like you learned something I mean, that's and what, then want to go back that's what kill cams do in multiplayer games in theory um mm. yeah in practice, I never find I am appeased by seeing the kill cam. Oh, <laughs> I'm often more angry. See me. Yeah. <laughs> like, what? Like he wasn't even doing the right thing for fuck's sake. Mm. Yeah. Like, I mean, like a lot of my deaths in, in, in City of Brass come from like trying to fight a tough enemy or a boss or something and jumping from side to side and then like jumping sideways into a sand blowy trap that blows me down a big hole. And it like, I can see the mind's eye third person version of that where all those elements are visible, but in the moment it just feels like, I'm doing a fight. I'm doing a fight. I'm doing a, why am I going this? Oh no. And that's not as gratifying as it is in Spelunky where you have that. It's almost like there's a brief moment of catharsis that happens occur, like infinitesimally, uh, inseparable from the actual fuck up itself, which is like the kind of, it is the, and this is when he knew moment. It's like, you know, the sort of zoom in on, and now I like, take my hands off the controller because I know I've already fucked it up. Whereas first person that locked in viewpoint holds you in the, it holds you in a hope position for a, mm. just a, a little bit longer than a similar game would. I do like that moment actually, because I get it with <laughs> super hexagon because it's just kind of like, Oh, thank God that's over. Like, I can <laughs> stop using my brain. I Finally, I can die. <laughs> <laughs> get old video games. Yeah. <laughs> things we love. Yeah. <laughs> It's amazing the difference in our approaches to the world. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of uh, incredibly tense experiences that are ostensibly, um, but are also kind of a relief when they end, but are also good. <laughs> this is, is a spy party segue. <laughs> it is a spy party segue. Uh, we've all played spy party, have we not? Yep. Yeah. At some nice. point. <laughs> in, in different decades. In the last <laughs> 10 years. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Spy Party, which has been in development since 1643. <laughs> yeah. Children have been born and now have opinions about yeah. Fortnite in the time that it has taken for, for Spy Party to... The Scarlet Pimpernel Party, I believe it was called originally. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> I, I believe, yeah, it's not life is, you know, like... Um, like The Last Supper. <laughs> oh, <wow>. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's old. Anyway. <laughs> Spy Party. So, um, I came to Spy Party after its actual release into early access, hilariously, after 10 years of development. Um, very I think recently. it's only nine and a half. That <laughs> still <laughs> counts. Um, but so Spy Party is a game where, uh, one player, it's a two player competitive multiplayer game where one player is a spy at a party if you will entertain that notion <laughs> for just a moment uh, who has a number of secretive objectives to achieve like bugging an ambassador but which means actually putting a bug on them and it's annoying it's irritating <laughs> an ambassador um so hey, ambassador see- how about them Ferrero Rocher <laughs> yeah exactly oh spoiling out. Uh, involves seducing somebody which if you're ever unsure what that actually meant you'll be pleased to know it just means walking up to them saying absolutely nothing and then walking away (laughs) and then awkwardly walking back and then saying something equally meaningless and doing this three or four times until they agree that they have been seduced (laughs) and I I like to think that is a purely reflective of my own experience (laughs) Um, it, it involves, uh, trying to find, uh, trying to s- discreetly swap a statue. What benefit this is to the spy organization you belong to, I'm not sure. There are three, there are three st- kinds of statue, uh, Lionel Richie, Falcon, and, um, uh, Boobsy, uh, statuesque. Um, statuesque. I don't know what I mean. What do I mean? Well, it's more like a kind of fertility idol, it looks uh, like. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> wait, is statuette the masculine then? <laughs> statuette just means a small statue. All, I guess they are all little, aren't they? Just, uh, oh. You can't have a boobsy falcon, though. <laughs> it can't no. be done. And you can't have a boobsy Lionel Richie. <laughs> <laughs> though God knows we've tried. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Lionel Richie make a sculpture in one of his music videos. It is in a music video <laughs> for Hello, a, a blind woman <laughs> renders a Lionel Richie. Oh, yeah, that's it. She makes a statue of, of him. Right. Yeah. And this is that statue. <laughs> Simply it is not actually a statue of Lionel Richie. It is a head that Chris has decided looks like the head from the Hello It video. does look like the head from the Hello Rachel, so, but like this is how I remember them. Like I spend a lot of time as the sniper in Spy Party. I listened party. to a lot of this conversation <laughs> earlier on because Skype. I would be going like Lionel, Lionel Falcon, Lionel, <laughs> Lionel Falcon, trying to remember the order in which the statues are. Cause that's very important when you're the sniper. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> sometimes it would be boobs, Lionel Falcon. Um, <laughs> so it's an asymmetric. <laughs> <It's> Shaz's name, <laughs> <laughs> Lionel Falcon boobs. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, so, okay, so it's an asymmetric 1v1 game. One of you is <laughs> Try a spy do this better at for a me. party <laughs> trying to fulfill these different objectives and each of them has different tells and um, the other person is the sniper who is watching the building from outside and thus doesn't actually have perfect vision of everything that's going on um, and but can see a lot of the room and is also aware of some bits of information like particular characters and so what the sniper is trying to do is to keep an eye out for those different tells or for anybody who doesn't seem to be moving the way that an npc would move um and the spy is trying to pass under the radar and avoid detection while doing these various things yeah yeah thank you for explaining that uh in a way that I might be able to just edit in in place of my explanation, <laughs> which ended up deep in the, the Lionel weeds. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> 
Um, there's actually a tutorial now. Which yes. is yeah, yeah. excellent. And it's, it's really good fun. I, you know, it really captures, you know, personality in mm. that game. Cause I think that you could hear that and think that it sounds quite systems driven or quite sort of, okay, I'm looking out for this, this and this. They're, you know, binary states maybe, or they're very specific things, but it's so nuanced and some of it is just daft, but in a fun way, like the, if you're making contact with the double agent character, then both the spy and the, um, the sniper, when, when you do that, when you're standing in the same floor pad as them and you trigger the action, both of you hear the phrase banana bread. And I think that's because Chris Hecker was making banana bread at the time <laughs> or thinking about banana bread. And so just sort of incorporated that into the game. I think so, it's like the secret phrase that you've got to say to the double agent to sort of trigger them or to let yeah, them know whatever it is. But you can um, fake banana bread as yeah, well. You, you can so yeah there's a mechanic around that like in that uh the spy sniper's listening out for it and when he hears it uh they know that uh the spy is in conversation with the double agent right now unless uh, they're saying it uh falsely you can also just say it Mm. anytime but you can only do that once you can only fake banana bread once so you have a limited number of times you can say the phrase banana bread (laughs) (laughs) because uh, like more than that you just get kicked out of the party and it's also (laughs) worth stressing that um, shut up these kind of like because Spy Party has pretty nice art for quite a lot of its characters yeah yeah with the exception of a few of them <laughs> the waiter <laughs> the waiter who is like I feel I'm profoundly relatable it's kind of just like a low poly man in a, in a world of <laughs> the high Lionel Richie sculpture he is <laughs> yeah. party. Um, but it's it really is him I'm looking for cool like diverse <laughs> line up as that's, well like there's, that's the entire game actually there's some twins there's like an elderly lady in an amazing cocktail dress oh, yeah. there's like one of them's Queen Elizabeth II kind of as far as I can tell yeah, she's yeah. Like there are just so many kind of interesting. Mm. The but, uh, twins are identical, right? Yeah, yeah. So if the spy, the twin, so many times thinking it was the spy. And- if the spy is one of the twins, I mean, isn't it just twice as hard? If the spy I, I is think. One of the yeah, twins? I think. I, I don't know. I mean, I mean I, maybe there must be some other way in which it's uh, balanced. But as far as I can tell, being a twin is like. That is, that is a good it. way to... But I suppose it self-balances, because if all spies be the twin for that reason, then <laughs> you yeah, have yeah. a pretty good shot. But... I think, weirdly, it hasn't really come up for me, because when I've been playing, for example, when someone's done the banana bread thing, one thing that you can do is you can low-light characters which you think are definitely not the spy um if you're the sniper um so you can just click to put them in a kind of you know more muted color palette and then you know you can start concentrating on the others and i found that often i would for various reasons have removed one of those yeah you know, one of the twins relatively early Hmm. or Hmm. they would just be moving in different parts of the room. And so it wouldn't actually be too confusing. Uh. Yeah. I guess at the very least you could just highlight one of them right at the start because there's multiple levels of highlight and low light, right? Yeah. Well, there's neutral, which is just what the characters look like in general. There's low light, which puts them sort of in the shade. So you're sort of paying slightly less attention to them. And then there's highlight, which sort of, puts them more visibly on mm. your radar just mm. by sort of... Can you not, that. like, double highlight and double you can't, no. 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 you used to be able to. There used to be, like, a whole spectrum. You could oh. go all the way from, like, dim to completely black when you, can, <laughs> when you drew them out. No, at the moment it just seems to be, like... Yeah, three states. muted, neutral, and highlight. And then, you know, obviously you can sort of... You can do things like zoom in or whatever, but if you zoom in, you lose 
the sense of the whole space. So you sort of, it's yeah. that trade-off mm. of detail versus, you know, broader perspective. And as a spy, you see the laser sight of the sniper, so you know where the yeah. sniper is looking, so you can tell or, when you're being watched. Or and... you know where the central, yeah. like, point... Because I tried so many times to, like, throw Chris off the scent by pointing the, the laser yeah. somewhere else <laughs> while, like, trying to look around And I could totally tell when you were doing that as well. Oh. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I do the same thing. Oh. It's you a... were really bad at swapping statues. You were the worst. <laughs> Apart from that one time. Worst. <laughs> Yeah, when I told you my secret. <laughs> and then you did it, well, and it worked. Yeah, so actually, this is one thing I was going to say about balance with regard to the twins and things. One thing that's interesting about it is the maps are very different in terms of how they're kind of balanced. Like, so the, the first one we played on today, Pip, was the pub map, mm. where there are only two statues, one either side of the bar, and they're both kind of in the open as far as the sniper can see, and the sniper can see both of them at the same time. So, you know, you only have to stop the spy wants right the spy has four objectives at least to complete um as the sniper you have the option to kind of just pick an objective to watch for you could just keep an eye on the on the ambassador the entire time but what makes sense kind of seems to vary from map to map because we played that one and yeah you're right i i really did make a meal of trying to swap out that falcon <laughs> um but actually like on another map i think it's the veranda map there are there are two, there are four sets of two statues, some of which are in quite complicated positions. And when we played it, mm. I went as the sniper first and I did my very quick, like Lionel, Lionel boobs, Falcon kind of pass through the level. And then very quickly realized that like, hang on, Lionel, Lionel, Falcon, Falcon, that's not <laughs> correct. <laughs> and I realized you'd already done it. So I knew to watch the ambassador. And then by watching the ambassador, I managed to catch you and, and, and snipe you. I hate the ambassador. Yeah. And then when I played it, because we kind of went straight back into the, you know, the, the swap, swap roles. I knew, hang on, in this map, swapping is really easy. Just go for it straight <laughs> away. And it feels like that's kind of the way the game works competitively is like, as you get a bit more experience with it, yeah. the mm. idea is, you know, that even though you have the same objectives, the priorities in which you kind of undertake them and how difficult they are is going to vary. Like, I think it's the ballroom map, which is the one in the tutorial, mm. where, like, one of the two, there are two sets of statues, and there's a conversation pad right in front of one of them. And if the mm. NPCs happen to fill up that conversation pad, which they do randomly, then the statues behind them are really hard to see for the sniper. <laughs> so you sort of, I guess, I think that's part, a big part of the game actually is understanding the maps to that extent even though you wouldn't think they make such a big difference because it is ultimately just a room with people in but there are those little specific uh factors in each one that mm. sort of uh affect what strategies work and what don't and that struck me as like that was the moment where i kind of figure out like oh there's actually quite a lot to learn here beyond simply how to do each objective there is part of the tutorial where he's uh teaching you how to spot the ambassador butt pat I still can't see it. I know who the who the spy is at this point because I got there by shooting every single person once until it told me that I'd got the right person. It seems very similar to some of their other arm gestures. Like I still yeah. can't see it. I have been through that part of the mm. tutorial again and again. And it's I the magic eye butt pat. I have spent so much time, Tom, with my sniper sight zoomed in on that ambassador's buttocks, and I still can't see it. Where's the pat? That's the bug in the ambassador. <laughs> but do you actually like it? I really, really like it. Yeah, yeah, we had a great time. I think partly that was because I was playing... So I liked it, or it's not that I liked it more, but I found it more of a... 
an enjoyable and equal experience playing it with Chris. Whereas when I went into the game for the first time after the tutorial and just was playing with a stranger on the server, even though they said that they'd only just started playing, they were so much better than me. And it was... And also, I, I don't know whether it's linked to your time in the game or the number of wins that you had, but there were different win conditions available. So it was things like you know, picking up, I think you, because the ones that we were playing, you had to complete all four of those sort of starter objectives on, on the map as the spy. But the one that I was sort of um, playing with this other person was that you had to complete, uh, I, I can't remember, I think it was like three of five of the things. And some of them were just, you picked up a statue three times. And that was like, I, I didn't understand how to watch for that on some of the mm. maps because that just felt like such a an easy win. So, yeah, I mm. yeah, and so that kind of thing. I'm not sure whether there will be a point at which I just can't see the tells or I can't be because mm. I watched some of the um, the competitive stream that they run each week and. That was beyond. And I saw people in the Twitch chat just being like, look, I've played this game for a while now and I couldn't follow that. You know, there were whole like chains of events that told people particular things. And I'm just like, that's a level beyond which I will never see the game. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. How about you two? Did you? I, I, I don't know. I, I felt like it wasn't re- ultimately not really for me. Like the, um, the concept seems really accessible. Mm. Uh, it's something you can pretty quickly explain to people if you're, you know, Pip rather than Chris, and then they'll understand it. <laughs> but then, but then, the actual level it's played at, like you say, requires just this a huge amount of kind of fairly uh, abstract knowledge about what the what kind of AI behaviors are going to happen and what kind of weird animations are going to play, and none of that is really related to the fantasy of being a good spy. And mm. so you just need to know all this shit before you're good at it. And like, uh, I don't know, I kind of feel like the, my, my ideal version of that fantasy is either that the, the, the games last like maybe 30 seconds and it's really just, you're in there, you spot somebody, you shoot them, that's it, and you roll again and you just keep yeah. on playing really, really short rounds and it's incredibly kind of trivial and throwaway. Or like, you spend like an evening at a fucking party <laughs> trying to work out who's a spy. You know, like Hitman style, more yeah. that kind of thing, and like like the the middle ground it's gone for. Is, yeah, yeah, no, I mean that's but that's that's that is an appealing fantasy which that that game type serves, and the the middle ground for me just doesn't really exist. Like, I don't really want to learn a whole bunch of how to walk like an AI in order to to pass just uh, you know, some sort of test. It just that doesn't really do it for me have you played it with friends or was it with strangers I played it with Owen it was really annoying because obviously <laughs> so he instantly knew who I was just through some magic <laughs> Owen skill <laughs> and then I killed him as a twin because <laughs> I didn't know there were twins <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that I really liked was the fact 
that so Chris and I would go silent on voice chat while we played because mm-hmm. we were both concentrating and then immediately afterwards you know if somebody had been act- successfully killed then they would sort of there would usually be a swear word then followed by oh what gave it away and then we could actually sort of you know chat a little bit and it was actually fun and and if there wasn't there was a certain amount of oh but i don't really want to tell you what you Uh, missed out uh, on or but but also sort of starting to get to know a familiar person's style while you Mm. were both on the Hmm. same footing felt genuinely like a, a the more fun way for me of playing that game. I think there will be people who are like, okay, I'm just going to look into exactly how long the AI does this thing for and I want to know how many times they are likely to pick up a statue so that I can perfectly emulate this. But Mm. for me, that's not where the the fun of it is. And I think I don't ever want to, to play, or not ever, but it doesn't strike me that I would have fun playing against people who can do that because at that point Mm. it's just like, well, you will instantly shoot me, so this won't be a Mm. fun experience for either of us. I feel like the game's (laughs) bizarre multiplayer infrastructure plays against it in this regard. Like, it would be a good fit for sort of quick match-made kind of just throw Mm. me in a game and let me play one and then see how it goes. But because... For better or worse, it has a kind of lobby structure where there's a sort of, unless you're playing with a friend, there's a sort of, I'm not say social pressure, but you've got to kind of choose someone and invite them to play a game with you, which is a level of active participation in the act of matchmaking yourself with a multiplayer opponent that... It made me anxious. Yeah, it makes me nervous. Like, because the community actually seemed really friendly, but I'm just so not used to having easy interactions with people online that I still, like, there was part of me that just didn't want to be in that conversation or that Mm. interaction, even if this person was friendly. It was, there's an extra layer of it being daunting that wouldn't be there if, for example, if you and I played Marsh Mm. or if I was playing again with Chris or with Tom. Mm. Like the absence of that sort of just get me into a game, please button feels I wonder, like. Because he's partway through, I think, um, Steam implementations. Mm. So I wonder whether that will sort of mm. ameliorate that. Don't know. But yeah, it's, it's such an interesting project and it's like really pretty at this point, I would say. Because I've seen it at various points along <laughs> along the way, and it's definitely yeah. Although come I do, from, I do like, love rooms. <laughs> the aspects of it that are just so so dodgy, like Toby the bartender, who's just like a kind of like two red dots on a beige plank, <laughs> or like or the recording of of Chris Hecker saying banana yeah. bread, yeah. <laughs> and even like the gunshot when you actually take the, the shot, yeah. it's like a really low bit rate <laughs> sample of a sniper. <laughs> <laughs> And also, like, if somebody's body falls, it can fall outside the room. Like, their head is just, you know, floating in space at various points. I find it fun how many games uh, seem to end in the sniper shooting the wrong person before. So when there's when the spy completes their all their objectives, a short timer starts to say, okay, the spy's won unless you, unless you know who they are and shoot them now. Mm. Um, and quite a lot of games seem to end before that that happens with the sniper just shooting the wrong person. Like, they're so sure they don't even need to wait for the countdown and it's just an AI. <laughs> it's just yeah. fascinating. You can watch an AI for, like, 10 <laughs> minutes and just become convinced of their guilt. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. a human doing wrong. I'm going to kill them. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, the um, the sort of... Uh, I think that's why the sort of play with a friend but don't talk while you're playing, talk afterwards works really nicely. It kind of feels... Like, 
it's very unlike a board game because it's very analog, but it has quite a lot of sort of deception-y board game kind of feel to me, both in terms of sort of like session length, sort of 10 minutes yeah. ago, and then you re-rack and try again. But also like, you know, it, it did have that debrief feeling of after, for example, a game of Mysterium when you're like, okay, ghost, what the hell were you <laughs> trying to express with this card? What was that? And then, you know, you can get into it a little bit, which was nice. But also, for me, it was actually a really nice experience um, as a contrast as well, because I've also been playing Murderous Pursuits. Mm. And it's, you know, it's not the same prospect, but there are similarities. And because Murderous Pursuits is a lot of the same people... I've think who made the ship um mm. and so what it is is you are at a party on board a ship of some kind or a thing you know a sort of steampunky victorian-y thing um and there are a lot of ai <laughs> and you and you know seven other players are tasked with killing very you know with taking out each other essentially to to please some person who's hosting this party um so you're all assigned a target and you know you will have somebody who's trying to hunt you down as well and so it's this thing of like you you have a little radar thing that essentially plays hotter colder because it tells you whether you're on the right floor or if they're above or below and it also goes green if you're facing broadly the right direction but when they get a certain amount close to you then that bar just sort of is as big as it's going to get. And so you then have to start narrowing down who amongst the people around you is your target and sort of trying to figure out who's, you know, behaving in a particular way. Um, So it sounds interesting and there's kind of promise to it. And I had a decent game of it at the PC Gamer Weekender, but the player base is not there. It peaked at 150 something players Mm. and that's just not been enough to offer me a good experience. Like I haven't found a single game of it where all eight of those slots have been humans. The highest I've managed is five. And I've tried to play it with the rest of the team. And we did manage to get like a game um, which we couldn't quite finish for other reasons. Um, but the thing with it is that it clearly needed an early access period because some of the abilities don't feel quite right. They don't, you know, cause you have two active abilities that you can deploy. For example, there's one that you can press to reveal the people around you. So you can tell who's neutral, who's a hunter, who, you know, if they're, if they're within a certain distance from you. Um, and there's also stuff like you can throw down a thing that stuns in a range around you so you can get away or like you can disguise yourself in a, as a different character and sort of try and throw people off that way. Some of them just seem so powerful compared to others. Like why would you ever use anything that isn't, um, or to me, it seems like why would you not have the, the stun and the um the reveal options because they're like <laughs> reveal like why would you not because <laughs> the mm. cooldown doesn't seem enough so you can just use it mm. um but also because the there aren't enough human players you then start to watch out for what the ai you know how do you <laughs> pick out an ai who maybe has been programmed slightly differently from the i <sighs> mm. you know it loses its 
that's when the fun just gets punctured like the potential fun that you could have but i think in in a similar way to what we were saying about far cry 5 the experiences don't seem significantly different from game to game either it is the same core idea that you're all just sort of you know playing essentially murder dominoes on a ship um and that's fine and it could be a fun kind of knockabout if there were enough people there but it doesn't feel like it it i would want to play it for for weeks or for whole oh, really? evenings or yeah like i'm not it mm, i'm not sold on it and also it's mm. 18 quid oh wow fucking hell 18 quid for not full games of a thing and that's that's the other thing is like because maybe you could have really good games when it's eight friends of yours but that's nearly 150 quid and that's mm. i it's <laughs> really hard no to launch a I multiplayer could... game now multiplayer only game unless unless yeah. it's like free to play or there's some sort of i i think they've said in a blog post that they're looking at you know things to do, you know like that they haven't phrased it in quite that way yeah, yeah. of like saving things, but um, trying to figure things out. But it just, it felt like such an obvious candidate for early access for various reasons, mm. for balance reasons, for building a player base, for, you know, all kinds of stuff. And I'm get you know, I would, I assume there's a business reason that they did not do that, but you can't ask 18 quid for that experience. It, I, they it seems like they keep trying to make this game ever since the ship, right? Because <laughs> they there was one in between two, like Sunset something. Remember that mm. on a cruise ship? Yeah, I well, do. They, yeah. they also remastered the ship. It was called Remastered, I believe. <laughs> okay, that's pretty good. Hey, it's, isn't it? A, <laughs> isn't it like a, isn't it a cruise ship <laughs> that doesn't have a sail? Anyway, you should take that up with them. <laughs> Maybe they put a mast on it. I don't know. <laughs> probably did well on a steam sail. Oh <laughs> no. Should we end the podcast forever? Now? Yeah. Oh, Marsh has returned to kill the thing he created. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, but That's so sad. as a well, but as a cam- mm. uh, as a comparison, it was it was really interesting to see the um, the the prospect of Spy Party through some of those lenses to sort of you know mm. get a sense mm. of how it measures up to what other games are doing in that. Can you tell a human from an AI yeah. sphere? And being 1v1 gives it an advantage in terms of like, yeah. <laughs> as long as it's player base doesn't dry up to one person. <laughs> as long yeah. as there's two, you're all right. As long as Chris Tech is still playing. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's his plan, actually. Keep, stay on the servers. I'll find the one person who likes this idea and have to play it with me for 10 years. <laughs> and then kill them just relentlessly because he knows all of the tells. <laughs> developer listed so that's he's already done that oh, okay. he's oh, yeah, fine okay. it's a closed system <laughs> yeah i know he has an artist like um mm. you know the original shitty mm. art was him and then the the current art is by a professional artist too um with the exception presumably of toby the shitty barman <laughs> yeah yeah toby's from the old version <laughs> <laughs> the concept art is just him a, a plank with two red dots <laughs> he nailed it <laughs> i see what nice. you just said <laughs> Shall we do some questions from questions, as you once famously said, Marsh? I did say that. I will also say, I have a question. Oh. And it's from myself. Good <laughs> God. We tried this once before and it led to success. So, <laughs> no pressure. I, as many other people did, 
watched uh, uh, Childish Gambino's uh, This Is America video last week. Mm. Or maybe this week. I don't even know. It was this week. And it was very good. And uh, it's an incredibly uh, intense art experience. <laughs> it has uh, a huge amount of uh, like imagery, which has been unpacked kind of tediously by Twitter. But also, <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think it is a, 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 a really startling video work. Like... Uh, it's hard to even categorize exactly what it is because it's it's obviously the the imagery is just as important as the things he's he's mm. saying, um, but like I, I came away from that as I do many kind of like you know r- enriching art experiences thinking oh, I found games <laughs> you know um, I was mm. wondering like uh, I mean, games do a lot of good things I think and there are obviously really kind of enriching experiences one gets from games and kind of like highbrow intellectual things and even political things but they all seem to be quite kind of like discursive like Papers Please is a game that you the meaning of it is derived over a period of time when you're kind of engaging with systems and like it's uh, Charlie Gambino's video is just so kind of like uh, literate but also kind of visceral and in, in immediately engaging and it's I, both I, dense and arresting. Yeah, it's like what, like two minutes long or something like that. I think it, you know, it is a, a polemic, right? And I don't know, can can games ever do that? Have games done it? I can't think of any. It's so, and I don't uh, like because that video is like it's vital in like all senses of that word. It feels like, um, but also I I think. Uh, Something that I think about a lot with games in terms of maybe why I don't have those experiences in that same way with them is partly because they're so hard to put together. Like games, like they feel more than anything. Like they've got so many different moving technical parts Mm. that, that it, it, I don't know whether it would be, it would feel like a luxury to be able to then spend that time on, you know, on all the other things that would go into making it as rich or as sort of dense or as, you know, and, and over a longer period of time, because if you put out a two minute thing that is anything other than a free to play project, Hmm. that would be a not sustainable thing we want for the amount of work that it would take right yeah we once described them as a car full of paintings and you have to spend a certain amount of time learning to drive the car and so <laughs> yeah, it can't yeah. be that punchy really there's going to be mm. an adjustment period just uh, how do i even function in this thing and, and make like, it do its thing and also there's like the the speed with which you can react like maybe that amount of time between the idea and the final product, if you want to put anywhere near as much stuff in it, would preclude something as visceral. And I know that's a word that gets bandied around a lot with regard to video games, but it, you know, if it was a thing that would only come out next year, if the production values were there, or if it's, mm. you know... Games are inherently discursive. Like it's it's almost impossible for I think for them to get away from that. Like both in the terms of um, the fact that the player is almost always embodied in that experience. It's something I've encountered recently talking to people making VR movies, hmm. encountering both filmmaking uh, philosophy, uh, hitting, colliding with game making philosophy. 
uh, filmmaking philosophy, the cameraman doesn't exist or the camera person doesn't exist. Uh, in game making philosophy, the camera is a person. Yeah. And that's a hugely different thing. And it's, it's, it's particularly, uh, pointed if you consider something like the This Is America video, which is directed at the camera. Not every music, but music videos are, are a form where actually the camera is addressed more often than in the vast majority of forms of filmmaking. You know, often music videos happen at the camera. Um, you know, short of like documentary television or any, most forms of te- like daytime television, like there aren't many kind of like, uh, structured, film forms where the camera is so regularly kind of directly addressed. However, in that case, even so you are not like you're being taken on a journey. Like music has a, the, both the, the, the structure of the video, it's uh, uh sort of um, the method by which it kind of delivers its imagery. It's about what you're perceiving in the moment. Like mm. it, it's kind of, it's, it's sort of uh conceit or not conceit. It, it's sort of, um, Meaning is a lot concealed, and this is one of the reasons it has been so um, picked over by Twitter is, is how much it manages to conceal behind other images, like mm. um, how much it's saying that invites going back and looking again, but how much it distracts mm. you in the moment, and it's about distraction in a big way. It's about your kind of you, you not having necessarily agency over where you're looking in the moment, how much of a slave to you know a kind of certain experience you are, right. which is very anti-game basically functionally. Like you- yeah, do you think so? Though I think maybe that the, I mean one of the things that slows down games is the fact that you need to understand how to interact with them, the driving mm. of the car. But like, I feel like that 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 need for interaction could play the role of like the distraction element, like the the childish Gambino kind of gambling in the foreground. Essentially, you're learning how to do something, but actually, you can kind of detect if you look closely what the repercussions are or what the. Mm. I, I kind of feel like there must be games that have done this. But the only ones that I can really think of are like the really facile sort of like slap Donald Trump kind of flash games, which have which aren't in any way subtle and don't really have any of that kind of. You see, cause- I think maybe the other thing is this habit of having those cinematic sequences in games because you know often I, I don't know like you know in the in the opening segment of Prey for example the the current one or more recent one um where you know you're sort of going through the initial i guess testing chambers and then you know there's the scripted sequence Mm. of the things that are happening outside the booth but like games especially games that need to succeed financially on that scale Mm. feel like they absolutely can't justify to the people higher up while making the game yeah having an effort that isn't the focus you know like why would you implement that scene if the player isn't looking at it how do you justify that workload how do you Mm. and sort of and this isn't the same point but something that i wanted to say before i forgot it is that and i come back to it every now and again it's i think games and i haven't quite worked out why but games are so bad at expressing anger like i've i've felt lots of things while playing games like joy or you know I've laughed at them I've cried I've you know I've felt various things but I've never felt that same level of just rage in a game like expressed or shared by the creators of the game mm-hmm. unless it is a very straightforwardly hateful mm-hmm. and not subtle Games aren't good at saying Same. sit down and listen because games typically want to say like sit down and listen, please. But if you'd like to get up and stack boxes over there, 
that's okay. Like, mm. that's not conducive to polemic in the way that you describe it. Like, yeah. Like, I was thinking about, like, how I think the closest you're going to get to a music video within games as a, as a medium, at least in this way, is something like 30 Flights of Loving. Yeah, that's good. That's a good. Or Gravity Bone, where mm. you're talking about, like, a vignette. It takes about the same amount of time. But what's interesting about those things is, um, those experiences is they, they, they happen and then they kind of reoccur in your mind. Mm. Like you go through them at a kind of breakneck pace, particularly, uh, 30 flights of loving. And then the work of piecing them together and kind of understanding them happens afterwards when actually steering them is done. So, you know, you could say the 30 flights is a 10 minute long experience. And I'd say it's probably about half an hour long and the back 20 minutes is like you making a cup of tea afterwards and trying to like figure out what actually happened hmm. or playing it again or whatever form the figuring it out takes. And that for me is quite unlike a very polemic music video or any kind of like short snappy piece of polemic art where the active interpretation is happening dramatically live, right? Like that's why that um, sort of piecemeal Twitter analysis is not going to be very satisfying for something like the This Is America video hmm. because actually your experience of watching it is of trying to realizing that something is happening and trying to understand it as it happens rather than uh steering your way through it and then p- piecing it together in your own time afterwards or that sort of like if i just feel like video games enforce a sort of slightly more passive form of hmm. reception in being more active if that makes sense like you're hmm. always gonna be slightly at a remove because you're not at the total mercy of somebody else's vision necessarily yeah. What was that um, game? Was it by 2D Boy? The game where you burnt a whole bunch of things? Yeah, Little Inferno. I mean, mm. it feels like, I mean, it's it's a much longer game than a, certainly not a polemic, but I mean, the point of it is that essentially, I, I don't know, well, it has a has a purpose in, in essentially decrying what you're doing throughout the game, but the fundamental act of what you're doing is meant to be so kind of enticing that you, you don't care. Yeah. But then at some point you're meant to also imbibe the greater meaning of it. I don't think it really works, but maybe that's something attempting, flailing for the, mm. for that same sort of gesture. Games right. are great transmitters of mood, right? Like yeah. they're not necessarily great transmitters of message. <clears throat> like inside yeah. or something is a great kind of yeah. mood piece. And it says something about something, but you, be hard pressed to pin a particular political mm. philosophy to it. Brain slugs are bad. It is bad. Brain slug. It's just not good. Mm. Is it? I one of the <laughs> <laughs> one of the games I played with the most overt political message backfired in its actual message, uh, which was uh, Sweatshop. Oh uh, yeah, which was a game sort of designed to uh, shine a light on how bad conditions are in sweatshops and mm. make you angry about them and and. Um, uh, tell you facts about, you know, this really serious, terrible problem, but it put you in charge of the sweatshop. And so you had to manage, uh, your production lines and meet quotas and make the safety compromises that, um, mm. that lead to, you know, children getting mutilated on the production line. But because it put you in that role, your sympathy ended up being with the production, uh, with the manager. Like at the end of it, I thought, shit, it's hard to run a sweatshop. Jesus Christ. I mean, <laughs> previously I was like, oh, it's terrible. The conditions in these sweatshops. Now I'm like, man, you, you don't know the pressures they're under. It's hard to meet these quotas. You basically have to cut corners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. 
Yeah. <laughs> so games, like as you say, they're good for mood and bad for message. If you have yeah. a message in, in mind and then you put interaction into it, you're just playing with fire. It can go in Yeah, because people tend to believe in themselves, right? That's the thing. Yeah. It's like, I'm the put-upon party here because yeah. <laughs> it's hard to be me. This is frustrating, all this bombing or whatever it is. I don't like, know. I think also, I, maybe I'm just omitting things from my memory because I know that... Because a lot of like really tiny games are very good at just expressing like a short sharp burst of a mood or an emotion or a sort of like a very sort of jagged feeling it's more that they and they can be really complex even if they're really short because it can sort of be a complicated feeling that it evokes or you know it can be unexpected or it doesn't quite tie into what you thought would happen or you know all of those different things and they can sort of provoke you in ways that are really, really close to anger or that are, but aren't quite the sort of thing that I meant when I was talking about the this particular video. Um, but I think maybe there's also a fundamental difference in the vocabulary that we reserve for video games and the spaces in which we allow our general conversations about them to exist mm. that maybe also colours the reception of them because you know we maybe are in a different mindset mm. or allow them to be only particular things i don't know mm. this was the getting us now <laughs> i think it's a question drawn. mark <laughs> sorry everybody <laughs> our next question comes from jake instead of marsh and jake writes dear wooden boxes and opening devices or mostly just chris that's a bit hey guys uh, blah, blah, blah. So, um, I was wondering if you had any idea why only certain podcasts seem to work in China. For example, CNC works perfectly as does the football ramble. However, shut up and sit down. PC Gamer and RPS don't. I was wondering as cast podders yourselves, if you could provide any insight as to why this would be. Is it a result of hosting or something else? Kind of regards, uh, Jake, he says, he also adds, Mr. Francis, why are digital games so much cheaper out here? Is it simply the result of how much people can be expected to pay for a luxury? Hmm. Um, I, if Steam games are cheap out there, and I don't know myself, but I assume they must be, uh, if he's asking this question, um, that was probably because Steam have recommended prices for each region. So when you price a game on Steam, you say, I want it to be a $15 game and then it fills in all the prices in all the other regions and you can override them if you like, but it has a default price in each and it's not the equivalent of $15. It's, it's whatever they think the regional price should be. And they, yeah, they price it lower and lower income areas, I think. Mm. Also, um, although I would add China is a fascinating market for the reason that if something's on official steam in China, then it has a Chinese distributor who would be setting the mm. price. So that would actually have nothing to do with what you would set. Yeah, that's true. Um, but if it's gray market via Hong Kong, then it probably does go through that system. <laughs> so the answer is it's super complicated why things <laughs> end up cheaper or more expensive in China, actually, because also a lot of stuff is banned. So I definitely started out with an attitude of like gunpoint will be, uh, $10 and six quid. Cause that's about what $10 was in those days. Um, and I'm not following Steam's pricing because Steam's pricing was like, I think eight quid or something for, for a $10 game at that time. Um, and I was like, no, it's going to be the dollar equivalent and I'll do that. And all these different territories. And that was like back when there was five territories or something. <laughs> and now there's like, you know, 40. Um, and, uh, I've become aware of like 
actually following the dollar price is really bad for some regions. It could really mm. screw over some people. Um, and so these days I'm just like, okay, there are probably people who know more about this than I do. and <laughs> I should just go with the defaults. As for why certain pods may or may not be available, my best guess is it might have something to do with Amazon hosting. Amazon hosting be very popular for a lot of podcasts. We don't use it. So it might be one of the reasons we work and others don't, but I don't know. I have no insight because I didn't have any say in, like, I, I didn't do the edit or anything on the RPS podcast. I didn't upload mm. it. I just sent things to Brandon. <laughs> so who knows? Next question comes from If Coltrans G. Dear Loot and Health Bar, the level generator in Unexplored feels almost like a person. Because, like most of us humans, it pretends it has a plan. When has an anonymous game mechanic felt more human than the game's NPCs? I immediately thought of Desert Golf. Is it Desert Golf or Desert Golfing? I always want to say Desert Golfing, so I think it's Desert Golf, because it's not the one I usually think it is. (laughs) Uh, But that was a mobile game that did eventually come to PC, I believe. Um, And the question of whether its levels are random generated or not is an open one. Um, I think it is... Uh, it has been established that some of them are not, and some of them are. Like, it's, it has a huge number of levels, like more than a thousand, I think. How mm. far did you get, Marsh? Oh, God knows. I can't remember the number. You played it a lot. It felt like thousands and thousands. Yeah. It, it, like, weird things happen at very high mm. numbers. There, There is a kind of, I think there's even an end to it, but it's it's far enough that like six months after that game came out, I had not heard of anybody reaching it. Um, so there's a huge, huge number of levels, and they're very, very simple, quick, quick to complete in theory. Um, but it definitely feels like it has a personality. It definitely feels like a person screwing with you. You get to a level, you have a series of of easy levels, then you have a hard one and you feel like it's some human deciding, oh, you've had too easy a time. I'm going to give you this brutal one. And I suspect 95% of those are generated. Um, and the pacing, uh, may have been tweaked by a human at some point, but yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of occasions there where it's an algorithm, but you you read in human intention to it and realize, oh, it, it, you think it's screwing you for this particular reason, but actually it's just, you know, a quirk of its generation. Um, I used to know somebody who took losing at uh, backgammon against a computer opponent really personally <laughs> um, and definitely started to attribute particular like human characteristics like spite <laughs> to this particular thing so it would, so i guess you could probably call that either an npc or you know a computer system of some other kind but um yeah that became a weird grudge match that one of them was never going to outlive the other so <laughs> we're destined to do this forever you and i <laughs> Our next question comes from uh, Joe, who writes, Hi, for no apparent reason, I was recently looking at the IGF Wikipedia page. It struck me that there's a clear phase prior to about 2004 where I don't know any of these games I don't think I've ever heard of. 2003, Wild Earth. 2002, Bad Milk. 2001, Shadow Galaxy. 2000, Treadmarks. 1999, Fire and Darkness. Even though the IGF Grand Prize is named after the developer of Treadmarks, do you have any memories or thoughts on these games? Whatever happened in 2004, 2005? That's from Joe. Yeah, I have not played any of these games, but um, the subject has come up in discussions of the IGF because, yeah, it used to be weird. <laughs> A lot of weird shit used to win the IGF. And the one that came up in particular was Bad Milk, which I have not played, but um, 
I heard some stuff about it and we kind of Googled it quickly in, in the break to, uh, to check that it is what I thought it was, which is, it's a game largely featuring, um, uh, full motion video. Um, and it starts with you drinking some milk in your fridge that has gone bad. And the rest of it, I guess, is a hallucination of some kind or involves delirious elements. And it's like a room escape type thing, but it is very weird and, and made with a lot of, I don't know, with an aesthetic I would describe as incongruous and perhaps haphazard at times. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, and I think these days that get, kind of game might be, uh, I haven't played it, so, uh, but assume, I imagine it's good if it won the IGF Grand Prize. Like, there must be some merit to it. It's like the IGF, it's not like they didn't have judges back then. <laughs> um, it uh, seems more in the realms of experimental animation, y- though. So right, yeah. The sort of thing you'd encounter late night on Channel 4, you know? I was going to say it might be a candidate for the Nuovo Award now. Um, but back then it was winning the grand prize. So yeah, I think it's true that the IGF's uh, sort of priorities and values have changed. And well, there just weren't that many independent games back in mm. what was it, 2005? Yeah. I mean, when was, was in, Braid? Like, that it was, went in 2002. Braid was 2006, six, seven. Yeah. I don't know, but I mean, like, that was, that was the birth of the, or the rebirth of the indie game movement, right? Around yep. then. And prior to that, it had pretty much gone. So, I mean, that's maybe why there's yeah. fucking strange shit. <laughs> <laughs> but also, if, that- if the IGF was sort of less well-known or less well-attended, yeah. then it would stand to reason, and this is entirely just theorising and making a bunch of assumptions, but it would stand to reason that it was stuff that those people or a particular, like, group knew of or that were on the periphery of that and knew how to enter and you know all of that kind of stuff because you know i think yeah i've been there twice four years apart and uh it was kind of eye-opening how huge it's got like i was there i got there late and i uh, after i got through like the doors to the hall and i got to see the size of the hall how many people there uh, I realized, oh, it's going to take me another two minutes to get to my table. <laughs> I'm, I'm still not there yet. I need to not cross this enormous space. Not the plebs like me. <laughs> None of this table nonsense. It's folding chairs all the way down, Tommy F. <laughs> and when Marty ch- had a table, why didn't you have a table? Because <laughs> I'm poor. <laughs> and I wasn't working for PC Gamer at the time. Right. I was at RPS. <laughs> and we hang out at the back. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think you're probably right, Marsh. That the, and that might be both a case of like of the selection pool was, was smaller, so the stuff is going to be weirder, but also just like what an indie game was back mm. then was mm. just a different definition. Indie probably meant arty, and it doesn't so much now. It means, you know, the, when you think of indie games, I think you kind of think of the really successful ones, which some of them are arty, but a lot of them are just really good games that were made by a small team. Mm. Mm. I think as well that, and this is again, like it's stuff that is based kind of on my own experience and my own rather admittedly awful memory. Um, but I, I'm, I can't really remember at what point people started going to online fully for, for their coverage of things, you know, cause I, I can't, I, I don't actually know when PC gamer website started to be, you know, a thing that, that was well populated and not just a sort of mirror for the magazine. If it, you know, a blog on CVG. What, but you know what I mean? Yeah. That was a lot of what, um, early websites that were attached to, for example, magazines or things that people had set up. They weren't, 
they weren't distribution channels in the same way. Hmm. And also, I think that the judging for the IGF worked differently, I, th- I think, because obviously at this point, you know, people, lots and lots and lots of people sign up because, you know, and there are lots and lots of games to rate. And a lot of those people you know, are also part of various communities that then can go, oh, that was really interesting. I'd like to talk about it on this platform. It's a very different form of circulation and it it now has hooks into all of these other areas. Whereas in like 2004, Steam had only just launched as a platform, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and also I think... There just wasn't that infrastructure of, you know, more mainstream game websites that were A, populated and B, paying any attention to this stuff. Mm. I don't know. I, yeah, that mm. feels like a big part of that puzzle as well. Mm. I have a spectacularly dead leg. It's gone. Maybe you've drunk some bad milk. Maybe this is all a terrible hallucination. Some bad slow gin. <laughs> the fastest gin. Uh, next comes Matthew, who writes, uh, boring, he writes, but mercifully short question. <laughs> Destiny 2 is extremely cheap on Humble. Is it worth it if I am only interested in the single player campaign and not multiplayer? Or DLC? To which I, Chris, the only person here who's played Destiny 2... I've played some Destiny 2. Thanks. You sat there while I did. How dare you forget this. <laughs> oh, the book of grudges. Mm. Open once again. Thump. You spoiled a sea monster for me. Remember? <laughs> <laughs> because I do. Wounds are fresh. <laughs> The answer to this question... You were like, look over there. There's a sea monster that I found by accident. It was a glorious experience. Look exactly where to, I'm pointing. I was trying to encourage you to have an enjoyable time with Destiny 2. And how much did I play after that? None. <laughs> I don't know if that's my fault. Honestly, I normally I would. <laughs> if you don't remember, Simply I get to write the history book. Yeah, no. uh, so the answer to this, if you hadn't gathered that already, is, is yes. Um, I think it's like, I think it's something like $12, $15, $18, more than 10, less than $20 is what I'm saying, uh, on Humble this month, um, on PC, which I think is a very good value for what is I, a game I mm. admire very much. It just had a big expansion, uh, which me and Tom Senior talked about last week. The Warm Eind. The Warm Eind. Um, the warmest Eind. But fine in single player? Um, yeah. Well, like, so, so there's a bit of a sort of, um, splitting of hairs here with this question because it's like single player, not multiplayer or DLC, but it is a multiplayer game. Like it is an MMO. Like you need an internet connection to play it. So if that's an issue, then no, mm. don't buy it. But, and if you are connected to the internet, then you will experience other players, but not in a way that presses you to do anything. They're not going to But if them. you would actively like to never see another human character in a game, maybe not for you. I yeah, don't exactly. Think so. Like if you require it to be wholly single player in that you never ever have to even sniff at a connection. I mean, at that point, <laughs> have you tried sitting inside a box? Or playing Mass Effect. Those are the two options. <laughs> Um, but no, like, if you, like, I, um, I think one of Destiny's great strengths traditionally is the way that it turned, it, it, it 
it glides from single player Halo y sort of shooter thing into a multiplayer sandbox that eats your life. And uh invited in for you know especially for sub twenty dollars, yeah, definitely. Like that's a very happy sixty hours and most people were only angry at it because it didn't last four million hours. And hmm. And neither should it. And nor should it, indeed. Quite right. Quite right. <laughs> It'll outlive us all. I'm obsessed. I can't stop thinking about things that will outlive me. Oh, <laughs> Did you kill the sea monster? Uh, you can't yet. Yeah, expansion 2, Warmind. I see. So it, will, it, it oh. will not outlive you. Really? <laughs> There's a big snake. And it's very likely the same one. Or related, like a family member. Oh. It's not a good sea... Pip is pulling a face for the listeners. <laughs> Um, you don't have to shoot it though, if you don't buy the season pass. <laughs> I don't like questions. <laughs> then you'll be very happy that there's only one left. Oh, okay. And it comes from Thomas, who writes, Hi, Crate and Crowbar Carriers. Video game characters lug around a whole bunch of stuff. But what about podcasters? Do you have a small standard loadout, or are you constantly near the encumbrance limit? Cheers, Thomas. I have a lot of stuff that I apparently need to bring with me everywhere. <laughs> and uh, uh, I was traveling recently, and I, on the train on the way back, I'm always hoping, I always want it to be as empty as possible, and it's always um, uh, sad if it's at all full. And I got on the seat. Uh, that I thought I was going to have like two seats to myself and then someone else sat down and I was so like unreasonably indignant about this. Oh, for fuck's sake, there's another fucking person. I don't, I don't have two seats to myself. Uh, and the issue is basically that uh, the number of things I need to entertain myself, keep myself happy for an hour and a half from London to Bath uh, is more than I can reasonably fit around my seat area. And so <laughs> I have to go to my bag, which is in the luggage rack ahead on top and fetch things, which is difficult if there's another person there. I have to keep asking to like... Doing? <laughs> That's some bones not going to play itself. I was going to drum kit. What is wrong with you? Look, Talk I me through this. <laughs> okay. Are you baking a cake? So item number one is a laptop, obviously, um, uh, on which I will work if I can. And then the power cable for the laptop, which I thought I'd be able to get in-seat power from, but actually I couldn't because it was off, so fuck that. Um, I then have a, 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 there's not enough room for a mouse, but I have a separate device that's like a, a wireless trackball thing that I can, I can use as a mouse and it's great, but you cannot put it anywhere without it rolling off. <laughs> like if you've got a table, it rolls off the table it just, and it can roll under seats. It, like within five so it's minutes just a of ball, getting, Tom. it's virtually a sphere. Yeah. Uh, within five minutes of getting this train, I was like on my hands and knees crawling under the seat to get at it because it had rolled all the way back to the, uh, so this is a question. You know, I, I think you sound like the worst made, train made panic, more so. indignant about your presence than you were about him by the end of this journey. This is all the stuff I could bring down with me in one, in one go. He probably uh, just got off a dig cop parkway just because he couldn't stand you anymore. <laughs> Then I wish he had. I wish he had. <laughs> um, and then if I want a nap, uh, I really need the neck pillow that is on the, it's attached to my, to my main suitcase, which is above me. I was jet lagged, so uh, I kind of did want to sleep. You need to, minutes, be, Tom. You need to be both asleep <laughs> and fetching a trackball. Simultaneously working and sleeping, yeah. <laughs> and then also, um, I need, uh, my headphones, which are noise cancelling to block out the other human beings so I don't have to listen to them or think about them at all. <laughs> um, and that's partly necessary because, 
I broke the headphone jack on my phone, so I can no longer plug anything into it. So I need Bluetooth headphones to connect it. The only ones I have are these enormous noise cancelling ones. Um, and the Kindle, obviously. <laughs> I don't read anything. Uh, it's an I think it's hour and I, a I travel light. I'm going to say you could just install the Kindle app on your phone. I have to and read it on the phone. Suck it up. The phone's like barely half the size of the Kindle. <laughs> get a magnifying glass <laughs> those are two things that would be two an extra item that I've got to bring <laughs> yeah but you don't need any of the so others surely there what is work a... can you accomplish between your naps I got plenty of work done I didn't get much napping done but I got work done <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing right it's an hour and a half surprisingly no, long time no human gets two things done in an hour and a half <laughs> you get one thing done in an hour and a half and if you're lucky, it takes up the entire hour and a half. And if you're unlucky, you're looking at Twitter for <laughs> Well, so this is the thing. When I'm on a train, uh, on my laptop at least, I can't easily access the internet. And so I get loads done in half an hour. And then you go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, if I, I can do like <laughs> half an hour of work, half an hour of sleep, half an hour of work. That's a huge amount of work and a nap. <laughs> <laughs> That's hard. To, uh, how much this time is, how much the work, quote unquote, time is given over to finding a trackball? <laughs> Only 30% of most. <laughs> Very well. That wasn't at all what the question was, but it is an insight no, that I'm glad No, it is over-encumbered, I would say. Yeah. And, it, it, and it has a negative effect on those that would around. Be great. Wouldn't that be great, but also shit, no one should do it if um, if there was like an, if an encumbrance mechanic, because typically over-encumbered means you either can't move or you move slowly, right? Mm. thinking about mm. Elder Scrolls or something what it doesn't mean is like you've dropped that axe and you sort of <laughs> forgot that you dropped the axe and it's like back that way somewhere and you don't even find it mm. or you've got to balance an apple on your coffee how how, how, uh, how bad would that be but amazing but terrible and someone should make this mod for Skyrim where encumbrance mm. just means that every now and then it pops up a message saying you just dropped something <laughs> or you think you dropped something <laughs> just hear the noise <laughs> you have to turn around it's just like, like a clattering noise <laughs> yeah and up, and it was or you drop that thing and in order to pick it up you need to figure out how to um, you know unbalance all yeah. of this other stuff well like so you're holding a sword and a shield spell. you can't pick that up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. you're just trying to cup like a potion you want to pick up between your or sword you and your shield you end up like kicking Using your physics. axe all the way yeah. to like <laughs> every time you pick up the thing that's going to over encumber you you just drop something else right yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've done that in Splunky. You. you can only carry one item in Splunky, like, with your hands. And so if you need two, I've sometimes just, like, thrown the other one ahead of me and then, yeah. picked, like, brought the, the first one with me and then picked Which up the other one. Which sounds like you handle being on a train, to be honest. Yeah. Tom. <laughs> I throw my laptop at my seat passenger. Trackball bounces off wherever. I mean, does anyone else do the thing where if you need to, like, bring a bunch of stuff from the kitchen to the lounge and it's more than one trip's worth, you still try and kind of balance things on top of each other and yes. take it all at once? Yeah, and then you've got to open a door and then you... Like, mm. I've learned that it's better to do two trips. Uh, yeah, I, I have learned that and yet never do it. <laughs> like, I understand rationally. There's no reason not to do two trips. It's not that much, that inconvenient. And yet I will always still set myself the challenge of this can be done in one trip. I can definitely stack these things <laughs> on top of each other. Yeah. One of the best things that I learned while I was working at Pizza Hut was that trick of like balancing like three different plates up your oh, yeah. arm and like, Ooh. you know, deliver So essentially you can carry six full plates of food to a table. Awesome. It's pretty great when it works. <laughs> <laughs> What's in your inventory, Marty? Uh, pants and a laptop. 
According to what I brought to bath with me, probably. <laughs> like shaving a haircut. I don't, uh, I don't over encumber myself, but I do, uh, fortify myself like units in civilization. So whenever I sit down, cause I have a, a, a crippling, uh, inability to remember anything that's not immediately in my vicinity, I just pile things on top of me, uh, <laughs> so I can't forget them. <laughs> so, what? What kind of things? Everything I have. Like pants sit on the train. Well, not, I don't take the pants, pants in my bag and just stack them. I'm like assuming, the inside of my bag, but like, like I have to sit on the Do you mean that stuff. if you oh, ever use the overhead rack, that's that thing gone forever? Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My, the train owns that now. It like despawns We're as far as you can say. Everyone who's ever left a train at the same time as me has heard me saying, wallet, phone, passport, two bags, coat. <laughs> <laughs> Out loud, or I will forget them. Yes, Falcon, Falcon, boobs. <laughs> They're all check. Lionel, Lionel. <laughs> Lionel, Lionel, Falcon, boobs. <laughs> the old mnemonic. God, you're going to get off a train with so many bits of nonsense at this point onwards. It's like, no, sir, what are you doing? There's a guy called Lionel and a Falcon. <laughs> if I get that far, it'll be a miracle. <laughs> and then you're in prison. Yeah. <laughs> That's just crimes. Mm. Pip, what's in your bag? Many things. I know. Mm. My favourite thing is that I don't know. So I'm not (laughs) tending to be over-encumbered in that I can still lift these things perfectly fine, because otherwise you get to the point where you actually empty it out and find out what the hell it was. But I like being in that sort of grey area of feeling like I have a robust amount of things. I could probably deal with the world and I'm not going to look too hard at what any of those things are because it has usually come in useful because I can just think, I wonder if I've got something for that situation, look through the bag and then find, I don't know, a teaspoon. I could find a dip dab. I've found porridge in there before. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) like there was a time when... In a container or just loose? So it was it was fully made porridge oh. in a pot with a lid because so <laughs> I think Was I, the lid still? Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> no, because the thing is I th- I swear I've said this before. Maybe it was to someone else while I was trying to explain the same thing. Um but that it was one of those Starbucks porridges where they make it or they used to make it up for you. You know, they would add the hot milk or whatever it was and then you'd have to leave it for like an inconvenient number of minutes. Hmm. And so because I was carrying a bunch of things, I just put it like carefully in my handbag so that it would stay and like, you know, absorb and... I would have a lovely set. About five hours later, <laughs> I needed a pen <laughs> and found surprise porridge that was, you know, perfect but kind of cold by that point. I don't feel the question of whether the lid is still on is an unreasonable one given the track record with like things in your handbag and spillages. <laughs> oh, um, but there was an amazing time quite recently where I asked you to get something out of my bag because there was some food in there. Also, <laughs> I can't remember what it was, and then you just kept holding things up and going this, this? this? Yeah. I was like, oh no <laughs> it was just this kind of weird oh yeah no i remember that now which is quite nice it's the know. instinct of the rpg hoarder right it's the i'm going to pick up everything in this level doesn't what? matter if it's a flavor item or not just like but it's so useful it's so good kind of you don't like throwing anything away either no is- i mean i think uh, at the moment there's a lot of skittles in there <laughs> Because, I mean, a bag of Skittles spilled, and that's... But I like that. 
I, I keep them there because now, you know, until they finally run out, I will have a skittle every now and again. <laughs> I can just reach in, find a thing that feels like it's shaped like a skittle, pull that out, try and eat it. It's great. <laughs> this is fine at sure. least once. <laughs> but, you know. Is that not like sort of bag scuzz isn't there just sort of a substance that accumulates in any container over the time the are shiny so they do not accumulate it in the way that for example <laughs> a soft resistant. chew would <laughs> or porridge the hard scuzz resistant outer shell of a skittle <laughs> makes it ideal bag food yeah. I did learn my lesson about carrying those little um, ketchup sachets though. oh Jesus yeah oh that's not great that that lingers as they well it's breach under pressure bad yeah or you know a particularly sharp cornered notebook <laughs> or a business card oh yeah um, you know not great there are a lot of business cards in there there was Probably a time when mine. I don't know I can't take your business card it might sever the, <laughs> the ketchup sachet that I'm keeping in my bag in- introversion uh, once had metal business cards that would definitely sever a ketchup packet my mm. brother had to go to an A&E department once because he cut his hand open on a metal business card oh my god Holy yeah shit. like it because we were like we were little at the time because um, like, who's giving a child a metal business card <laughs> So, okay. Greetings, toddler. Do you have any to call me? Dad. <laughs> <laughs> dad. You want to circle back around on this and go up on a quick call? So it was from my dad, I believe. But oh <laughs> it was because my dad used to go to a paper supplies conference with a metal business card. No, That's a bit on the nose. No, You're a traitor no. to your industry. <laughs> He didn't work in the paper industry. So uh, evidently. <laughs> quite why any of this happened. But he, it used to be a great day of the year because he used to come home with all of these paper samples and me and my brother and sister <laughs> would like take it in turns to pick out exciting samples and some of them were business cards. I liked had, Power like, Rangers. <laughs> We all have paper samples day as a kid. <laughs> anyway. The day before Christmas, right? <laughs> anyway, one of them was, you know, a, a fun looking, you know, kind of, I think it was like, it had a, a holographic y kind of effect on it. Business card, but made of metal. And um, my brother was just playing with it and he managed to slice um, his hand open sort of between, on the pad uh, at the top between your thumb and your forefinger. And I remember him showing me, and we were both like really interested because you could see like the layer of fat oh my like, God. in your hand. <laughs> and we were both fascinated, but my parents took him to a and <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> in conclusion. <Video> games. <laughs> I hope that answered your question, Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> and if it raised more, you can't answer the ask them until next week, so that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I might take that one off <laughs> tactically. If you'd like to send us a question. Or paper sample. <laughs> <laughs> Papers, I don't please. live with those two anymore, so Metal, I don't no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to send us a question for an episode of The Crate and Crowbar, you can do so by emailing us at questions at crateandcrowbar.com. Actually, Marsh, do you want to do this? I don't think I can. Really? I really don't think I can. <laughs> 
It's been too long, and also I'm a bit drunk. Okay. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to uh, hang out with our community, you can do so on Discord, the link for which is on our website at crankcrowbar.com, which is also where you'll find show notes for this very episode. We're on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash crankcrowbar, and as ever, this podcast and its spin-offs are supported by our Patreon, which you find out more details of at patreon.com forward slash crowbar. You can find us on Twitter at Crate and Crowbar, and you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at C Thurston, which is C T H U R S T E N. Pip. I'm at Philippa War, which is P H I L I P P A W A D R. Tom. I'm Pentanact at P E N T A D A C. Marsh. It's Marsh Davis. D A V I E S. Thanks for having me.